get it. Yep. First Peter is where we'll be. First Peter chapter one. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, sorry, I wasn't <laughs> here last week. I would have rather been with you. Uh, I was sick. Uh, grateful for Dale filling in um, and, and preaching. There's a part of me that secretly loves to send those text messages to him, uh, where I'm just like, I know he's not happy with me, but that's what it is. So uh, I didn't get to listen to a sermon, but I've heard a, a lot of good things about it and that it was really good. We have a, a family tradition, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 15 is where we'll start. We have a family tradition um, I don't, where every Thanksgiving uh, we go visit my mom, we stay with her in Amarillo. And then on Friday, when the kids uh, were tired of our kids um, and the rest of the family, we leave. And the kids stay with my mom, and Morgan and I go shopping, and we get all of our, our Christmas shopping done for the year that day, most of it at least. Um, and every year we go to the mall, and every year I look at Morgan and I say, I hate the mall. It's just this tradition that we have. Uh, there's something about just a bunch of teenagers running around with bags filled with nonsense and then people chasing after all of these plastic things that fade that just drives me nuts. And so I was, I was for two weeks really thinking about this sermon and praying through it and looking at the words and trying to, you know, understand what was going on and, and, and looking at it. I had this realization that, that <laughs> everything in life outside of Christ is empty and the mall is a perfect illustration of this. There is nothing inside of the mall that is of any eternal value. Stores that are filled with all sorts of things, people that are carrying bags, trying to just, you know, find some type of hope, doing retail therapy, which is a dumb phrase. No, you guys, if you haven't heard that. This idea that we can buy things, that we can buy happiness, and it gives us this instant gratification, but then as soon as you get home, you try on what you bought at the store, and it doesn't quite look as good as it did in their mirrors. Maybe they have like the carnival mirrors that make you look different, or the lights are shining different, or whatever you bought. You don't like it now that the mall is just this epitome of emptiness that happens. But we can go beyond the mall with that. Life, anything in life. With the absence of Christ is absolutely empty. So I want to read uh, this passage of Scripture and pray, and then we will dive into it. This is First Peter chapter one, verse seventeen. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty ways of life. Inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed to you in the last times for you. So through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning uh, grateful for your word. God, I come to you this morning grateful for, for those of us who get to gather together, that we can sing songs, God, that, that, that glorify you. And that our worship isn't about our performance, our worship isn't about our style, the worship isn't about us. Our worship is about you. So I pray as we walk through this passage you have for us in First Peter that you would help us to see and to recognize 
God, that outside of you there is no value. There is no hope. All of life is empty. But with you we have more than we would ever need. That Jesus, you are enough for us. Grow us this morning in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 17. Let's read it again. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are conducting yourself in reverence during your time living as strangers. So if you remember, up to this point, Peter's talked a lot. He's talked about salvation. He's talked about who God is, how God saves. And now he's moved on to this section where he's talking about holiness of God. That's what this theme of this passage is. And right before this, Peter says, be holy because I am holy. Quoting the Old Testament, he talks about this holiness. And so in the midst of this holiness section, Peter says, if you appeal to the Father, if you plead with the Father, if you call on the Father for help, let's think about this for a minute. God is absolutely Father. And with that imagery comes this idea of closeness, of togetherness, of like a paternal figure that you can hold to. But what God also is, is God's also judge. And he brings about justice and righteousness, and it has legal ramifications. And so Peter tells us he judges impartially according to each one's work. So even if you're his child, you don't get a pass. There's no favoritism in God the Father, no nepotism. He is the perfect judge. He is perfectly just. So on the surface, we might think, well, it's a good thing that God's just judging me for my things and not the things of everybody else. I'm going to get what I deserve, and that's a good thing for me. I don't know about you, but when I meditate on the holiness of God that's stated right before this, and then I look at my life, what I see there are many areas where I know I fail to be holy. And there are other areas where I can think, you know what, I think I've got a pretty good grasp on this. Not trying to be arrogant or boastful or prideful, but just in a genuine way. But if we take those areas of our lives and we hold them up and and, and compare them to the holiness of God, what we'll see is what we think is pure is actually stained with dirt. Morgan has this mop thing. Um, I don't know what it's called, but it sweeps and mops at the same time. It's a, I don't know, I don't use it. So what we'll do is about once a week or so, she'll bust out this vacuum mopper deal and she'll clean the house with it. Now, there's not been many times in our life where I I like to walk barefoot in our house. And so I will walk barefoot and I think, man, the floors are pretty clean. I don't step on our ground and go, man, the bottom of the floor is just dirty or grimy or whatever. And then Morgan will bust out that mop and she will clean the floor and it exposes this hidden dirt that the floor just camouflages. And it comes out with this nasty, dirty, brown, gray water with the three girls that live in the house. It's just filled with hair, and it's just disgusting what comes off of our floor. I've eaten chips off that floor. In a lot of ways, that's how our holiness compared to God's works. We can look at our lives in isolation and think, I've got this figured out. I think I'm an okay person. My life isn't stained that bad until God brings out the magnifying glass or the vacuum. That's why God's perfect judgment on the one hand, we, we're afraid, like we think it's good because it's judgment just against me. But on the other hand, we need to be very careful because it is against us. And that God sees our heart. 
and that there's no stains and there's no dirt that God doesn't witness about us. And if it doesn't measure up to the gospel, if it doesn't measure up to God himself, then it is unholy. And holiness is one of those things that you either are or you are not. There is no, I'm kind of holy. You cannot be kind of holy any more than you can be kind of pregnant. You are or you aren't. And it's God's perfect just issues. That it's his judgment that rules on those things. Now, we misunderstand this because much of Christianity around us that's gaining momentum is this idea that we will we, we water down God. Yes, he is the Father, and we should be able to approach God as our Father, but let's not forget that he is also holy and just. And let's not forget that we are not. He is good, but he is not weak. And far too often our view of God is he is like a grandpa in the recliner who is so excited when you call and you stop by for a visit. He always remembers your birthday. He always has a gift for you. He never challenges on you. He just listens and nods along. Sometimes he may turn off his hearing aids so he doesn't have to hear you, but you feel heard. You feel listened to. And at the end of it, he hugs you, leaving warm and fluffy, yet utterly unchanged in anything in your life. That's not God. What we're subtly doing is we're taking God and we're making him in our image. When the Christian life isn't about making God look and think and act like me, but forcing me to look and to think and to act like the Father, to be more holy. Which means, at the most basic fundamental level, you and I must start with admitting that we are wrong about things. And that over the course of time with accountability and a healthy church and spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and prayer and studying, we repent and we grow in Jesus. If God's word is supposed to be the primary shaper of who we are, not our emotions, not our feelings, not our desires, and not our traditions. As Tanner told me last week when we had six straight weeks of somebody being sick in our house, traditions don't have to continue. So how does this impact our life? Well, it changes our motivations. That's what Peter's telling us. In verse 14, he says, we're not ignorant children anymore, living for our former desires of our heart. Now we're, we're living for Christ. We've made alive by Christ, through Christ, through his crucifixion. So we conduct our lives. We, we live in, in reverence is what the CSB says. Other translations will say, like as, uh, as in fear during your time as strangers and exiles. The word strangers and exiles is a specific word, and what it means is it's a temporary residence. That you have a home, but where you're at isn't your home. That you're not living there for, it could be a plethora of of different reasons, but it's not a permanent location for you. That you have a home, and this isn't it. And so during this temporary living situation, we are called by Peter, who is telling us for God, to live in reverence or in fear of God. Why? Why? We know from verse 1 that this was written to those chosen Christians living as exiles in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, part of the world. And sometimes our temptation when we're minority, especially as Christians, and get ready because this is the trajectory of where America is going, is that if we're the minority, if we're Christians, if we're clinging to these things, our desire is often to hole up and to self-protect. To live not like monks, but kind of like monks. Away. Evil is out there, so I'm going to take me and mine, and we're going to disengage from it and hide. And what Peter is saying, no, 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 no. 
You live your life in reverent fear of God. He is the impartial judge. See, the suffering that this group of Christians were facing would have tempted them to want to fear the emperor or to fear the government. But fear of the temporal misses out on the most important part. God is bigger than the government. And the fear of God is different than, than other fears. This is why the CSB translated translates it reverence. Because in our vocabulary, if I say I fear something, then typically what I mean is I want to get away from something. If there is a snake and I am scared of snakes, I don't run to a snake. I run away. If there's a spider and I fear spiders, I run away from spiders. If I'm scared of the dark, then I turn on a light or I get a nightlight. If I'm scared of certain people, I avoid them, or I'll move, or I'll build fences, or we'll arm ourselves. If we're scared of losing our lifestyle, then we'll do whatever it is to maintain and to keep our safety and our lifestyle. But the fear of God is different. The fear of God is not meant to drive us away from God. It's meant to drive us to him. Because we understand that he is God, and we also understand that he is Father and that he's good. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. We in ourselves do not have the ability to go to God. Our unholiness keeps us from being in God's presence. Yet God's holiness, our God's holiness is too great for us. Yet God comes to us. That's the point of Christmas. Thus enabling unholy spiritual beings like you and I to be made holy and spiritually alive. The fear of God doesn't drive us away from God. It brings us to him, and it brings us to him in honor, uh, in, in awe, and in wonder of him. So during this time as, as exiles that Peter's writing to this family, he's saying, understand where true fear is meant to be directed. Not at the emperor. Not at the soldiers. At God. It's interesting to me that, that these people are being persecuted heavily and Peter does not say it's okay to be unholy for a little while if you don't want to be persecuted. This is important for you and I, brothers and sisters. There's a bill right now that's trying to be passed through the Senate that if it goes through will impact you and I tremendously. It will have ramifications for your work. It will have ramifications for your family life. It's a bill that would legalize same-sex marriage and abortion rights in a way that would infringe on religious liberty. So our response to this needs to be, one, love and trust and fear God. And two, love our neighbors in the midst of all of this. But you need to be prepared. This very well could make providing an income for your family have to choose between being a holy lifestyle or an unholy one. It could cost you your career. It could cost you finances. It could cost you your vacation. It could cost you what we think in IRA is most important. Don't buy into the lie that it's okay to cave to social pressure. It's okay to lie about who you are so that you can keep living the lifestyle you want to live. get angry, but not with an unholy anger, with a reverent and holy fear. The reality is, Christians, we have sat passively by 
resting for decades on our blessed assurances, not actively proclaiming and sharing the gospel and not actively discipling one another, that now the government can move in this direction. So let that break our hearts. Let that fuel a love for God and a fear for God and a kindness for a world that thinks that's the only hope that they have. We will reject these unholy things and we will welcome those who reject them into their homes and into our lives so that we can show them the love of Jesus. We're not accepting those things. We're not supporting those things. We're showing why the gospel is more important. Verse 18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. So how then do we live in this state of reverence towards God? How do we conduct ourselves by knowing that we have been redeemed? Redeemed is a word. It's a Christian cliche word. We say it all the time, uh, but we don't always know what it means. The the CSB, the King, King James Version, say redeemed. The ESV says ransomed, if you have that. Both have a similar meaning. The idea was that you, like in, in our Christian circles, we've, we've missed this, but the idea is that it's being purchased out of slavery. See, in, in Roman time, there was an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It's different than American slavery. American slavery was mo- racially motivated. Roman slavery was not. You could be captured as a prisoner of war and end up in slavery, or you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. And there was ways for you to obtain your freedom as a slave. You could pay the price for yourself and be free, or a family member could pay the price and be free. And when they did that, it was called redeemed or ransomed. They paid the cost for you. You paid the cost for you. You were redeemed into freedom. So if we're being told by Peter that we have been redeemed by Christ, then that means several things for us. One, it means that we were enslaved. What were we enslaved to? Our sin. Before Christ, your only motivation in life was yourself. It was selfish in some form and some fashion. Second, if we were enslaved to our sin, then we are purchased by Christ in freedom but this is different than a complete and total freedom. We still have a master to serve, but our master is now God the Father Christ. It's a good master. The idea of complete freedom is a lie. You can't do it. A fish is free to live out of water in theory. But as soon as that fish lands on dry land, it will not enjoy its freedom and it will be killed by it. It is most free when we live within the bounds that God has given us. The parameters that God has set up, even when we don't fully understand why. So being redeemed means we had a penalty and somebody had to pay that penalty for us. That my sin, that your sin, it comes with a cost, that it's not free. And that we owe far more because of our sin than we could ever pay. So where did this debt come from? Peter tells us we inherited it from our ancestors. We were talking yesterday with Morgan's grandpa. He has pigeon toes like this. And I have toes like this. And if you walk around, our families are just either. There's nobody got straight feet. It's like this. We all inherited this from Pa. I didn't because he's not my biological grandfather. That'd be weird. We all pass on to our kids, and we've been passed on to ourselves, this sinful nature. 
see, this rebellion, this evil is, is outside of us, right? It's, it's absolutely beyond us, but we must not forget it's also within us. And what it does is it puts on blinders, and it makes us feel like all of the evil is outside, and if I can just get away from that, then I can live the life that I want to live and please God. But that's not the reality of what the Bible teaches. We sin because we're sinful. We start sinful. We don't earn our way to sin. We start sinful. No one has ever had to teach a toddler how to lie. There's just something in us from conception. We're not innocent in our sin. We've not helped ourselves. And so Peter describes it here as an empty way of life, which is the truth of all of life. Without Christ, all of life is truly empty. I think about this often as I am out and about when I see people who pour their entire lives into things looking for something of substance and something that's real. I mean, it, it hurts me when I see churches that are trying to appeal to people by trying to entertain them when what they need is not more entertainment. They need something worth gathering for, something of substance, something that is real. It pains me when I see people who value their work more than they value anything else, doing a good job or building a business or getting a promotion or making a good living or providing for their family or being independent, etc. All are noble and valuable things, but in the end, without Christ, it's utterly waste of time. It's empty. And here's why. We will stand before the perfect judge God. And, and he, will, he will look at God and we will say, look what I built with my career, Lord. Look at the living that I provided. Look at the promotions I got. Is that enough to redeem me? No. And we know this. Intrinsically, there's something wired within us that we know this because we can work hard and we can pour ourselves into careers, we can pour ourselves into whatever, and at the end of the day, there's always an emptiness that settles there. It's why suicide rates are higher now than they were before. When it's quiet, when life settles down, there's always the thought, well, is this all there is to life? Just work until we die. So that maybe life is, isn't about work. Maybe it should be more about experiences and, and having vacations or just spending time enjoying life. So we live for the weekends and we will rearrange schedules to make sure we are doing what we want to do. To make sure our kids have the life that isn't just about school and studying but slowing down and having fun. And we'll seek entertainment. We'll seek vacations. We'll anticipate them for weeks and for months. We'll soak up every moment. But then in the end, without Christ, it's absolutely and utterly empty. And one day we'll stand before the perfect judge God and we'll say, I didn't let life pass me by, Lord. I slowed down. I lived. I laughed. I enjoyed all that you gave me. Is that enough to be redeemed? No. And we know this. Because in the midst of the vacation, in the midst of those moments of relaxation where we're in a different place, surrounded by the beauty of creation that's different than what we're used to, We'll bury our nose in our phones. We'll have moments when we think, is this it? Is this all that there is? I'm going to work 50 weeks so that I can enjoy two a year. 
I mean, the reality is we can give, we can go on for more if we want to and do more and more examples of all that are good things but are not complete things. They're not fulfilling things, right? Our family, our houses, our cars, our towns, our status, etc. All of those things are empty without Christ. And we need to hear this because we convince ourselves that it can't be that way. Even believers who cling to Jesus, we will lose this. We will convince ourselves that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so we end up depressed because we can't figure out why life isn't the way that I want it to be. So when the job isn't fulfilling and the kids aren't fulfilling and the house isn't fulfilling and Netflix isn't fulfilling and TikTok isn't fulfilling and Facebook isn't fulfilling and Instagram isn't fulfilling, then what we do, whatever we do is unfulfilling, especially for unbelievers, because what hope do they have outside of those things? It's just meant to keep you occupied until you die. That life is just empty. And so oftentimes what happens is you'll turn to something different instead of filling the emptiness just to numb the emptiness. So we'll turn to alcohol and more alcohol. Or social media and different social media. Or a vacation or a new vacation or a house or a new house or a car or a new car or a job or a new car, a new job or a, a renewed commitment to our spouse or a new spouse or etc. Whatever it is that we try to numb this pain with thinking that this will change how I'm feeling in the emptiness. And what Solomon calls this in Ecclesiastes is you're just chasing after the wind. Run as fast as you might, you'll never catch it. It's wind. And I love what Peter says. We're not redeemed by things like silver and gold. He talks about silver and gold as if it's as common as dirt in West Texas. We would be tempted to try to buy our redemption with silver and gold, wouldn't we? Yet Peter says that's not enough to redeem this empty life. So then, how? How have we been? What is more fulfilling than silver and gold? What gives life and meaning and fulfillment? What makes life worth living? Verse 19 the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. It's the blood of Jesus that's more valuable than silver and gold. You've been redeemed from an empty way of life. Think about the, just the blessing of that. Instead of just having to go through the motions your whole life and not really have anything of substance and anything of value happen, we have the precious blood of Christ, which means our life is worth living. That we have a hope. That we can have a faith that we can cling to in the midst of the darkest times and the best times. I mean, what Peter is saying, it is better to cry, die with Christ than to live a long and empty life without him. And he connects everything to the death of Jesus, to the blood of Jesus, that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. I want to trace this with you through the Bible because I think it's so important. In Genesis 3, if you think back to the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned and their punishments, they were given and they were kicked out of the garden. We're not told, but we do know that God kills an animal and clothes them in the animal skin. It very well could have been a lamb. So an animal was killed to cover their sin and to cover their shame. The next chapter, Genesis 4. The reason why we, it, it could be a lamb is because we know that that's what Abel kept. And Abel offers the sacrifice of his firstborn sheep, a sacrifice to God, and it's accepted. While his brother Cain offers a sacrifice of the, the fruit of the land, and it's not accepted by God. And this makes Cain so angry that Cain killed Abel. 
And God tells Cain, your brother's blood rises from the ground. This idea that there is, uh, that some sacrifice, some killing of an animal is acceptable to God, yet killing another human being is unacceptable. And it puts this importance on blood. If we fast forward to Genesis 22, Abraham has been praying his entire life for a son. God finally, against all medical experts, gives Abraham a son, Isaac. And then God looks at Abraham and he says, Take your son, your only son, have him carry the wood to an altar, and I want you to kill him and sacrifice him on the altar. Why? Abraham doesn't know the why, but he knows God, and so he obeys He ties Isaac to the altar. And Isaac, we think of this story as Isaac is a little kid. He's not. He's probably a teenager at this time. I can't imagine what he is saying to his father. Well, the knife is raised in the air. He's about to bring it down and kill his son, only for God to show up and say, Stop, I know you believe me. And he shows Abraham. Do you remember what was caught in a thicket? A ram. You know what they named the place? God provides the sacrifice. Exodus 20, after the Israelites had moved to Egypt and they've been there for hundreds of years and now God is going to use Moses and Aaron and bring them out of Egypt. He's doing this through all of these these signs that God is going to show to Pharaoh to let his people go. And the last sign is the worst. It's it's the sign of, of death. Do you remember how God tells the Israelites to avoid this sign? He says, you're going to slaughter a lamb. Each family, an unblemished, spotless lamb, you're going to take the blood of the lamb and you're going to paint it on the doorpost. And I'm going to come at night and every house that has the blood of the lamb, I will pass over. The spotless lamb will die in your place. It takes a death so that you could live. Fast forward to John chapter 1 verse 29. When John the Baptist looks up, He sees Jesus coming towards him, and John the Baptist says this, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we go to the end of Jesus' life, when the disciples are in the upper room for the last time together, before Judas has left to go betray them, they're celebrating the exodus when God provided the the, uh, Passover of the people. So they're eating the bread, and they're drinking the wine, and Jesus takes those imagery, and he reworks it. He said, the bread is now my body, and the blood and the wine is now my blood. And he establishes this new covenant with his people where sin and shame are covered, where the sacrificial lamb is accepted, and his blood speaks. So where God provides the sacrifice, where those who have the blood of the lamb covering them escape death and God passes over their sin and their judgment. It's no coincidence that in many of the Old Testament prophecies, the way they talked about Jesus was he was like a lamb silent before the slaughter. And if we look ahead to Revelation chapter 5, it says this, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of living creatures and of the elders, and their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creation, a creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The song that is sang in heaven. 
by the angels and everyone is reflecting on this spotless, unblemished lamb. So Peter can take this language and help us and help his, uh, his church, right? This, this group of Christians that he's writing to that are going to be persecuted, many of them will be killed and say the precious blood of Christ is more valuable than your life. The blood of Christ is enough to redeem you when silver and gold can't. The blood of the Lamb is the blood of God. Think about that for a moment. God comes to us in flesh so He can bleed for us. He bleeds not because He is weak, but because of His great love for us. God punishes sin, and because he is holy, all sin must be accounted for. So there's only two ways for our sin to be accounted for. One, we remain in our sin, and we face the judgment of God when we die, or when Jesus comes back. Second, we trust in Christ. We leave behind our former ways, and we are passed over in the final judgment because our sins have been punished in Christ. And through Christ's blood, God rescues believers to new life, to a living hope. But you know in the Bible, that, like that's salvation, right? That's justification that happens. But the Bible talks about the blood of Christ doing other things for us too. It doesn't water that down. That's a phenomenal thing that we should cling to. But the Bible talks about other ways. In, in Hebrews, it talks about it, the blood of the Lamb clean out our consciences. In Hebrews 10, it says it gives us access to God in worship and prayer. In 1 John 1 and in Revelation 1, it progressively is cleaning us from more and more sin. In Revelation 12, it says that we're able to conquer the accuser of our brothers through the blood of the Lamb. In 1 Peter 1.19 here, it says it rescues us from our old sinful ways of life. The blood matters. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. See, this blood of the Lamb, this Jesus, we're told he's foreknown. Before, we can't wrap our minds around this. He's foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus is God. He has never not existed. He has always been the Son of God, and the gospel has always been God's plan. It's not like in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and God goes, man, now I've got to do something different. This is important for us because this is where Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, and Muslims are going to separate. They will say things like, Jesus is a good man, and he's a great prophet, but he is not God. Or in the case of Mormons, they'll say he is one God among many gods, but he was created. And if we're going to be Christian, this is a closed-hand issue, which means we do not budge. Jesus is God. Always has been, and always will be. And that this salvation was planned before the world. Before space and time were created. Yet God accomplishes his plan of salvation in space and in time. So that you and I can look and see the depth of God's love for us. Think about this. The invincible, immortal God makes himself mortal, able to be killed for you and for me. 
And it's in that sacrificial death of the unblemished and spotless lamb that God's gospel, God's glory is most fully displayed. He's always known this. There's been shadows and figures in the Old Testament that have given glimpses of this gracious gospel that God has shown us. However, Peter calls this the last times, right? In the last time, since the death of Christ, the last times it's been revealed that we're no longer waiting for the Messiah to come and to save us. Now we're looking back at the gospel and we're worshiping Jesus. And then we're looking forward to when Jesus is going to come back and we're eagerly and hopefully living our lives holy because God is holy. So why does this matter? Verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Through this glorious gospel known before the foundation of the world revealed in the last days, God gets us to believe in him, to have faith. We have a hope that is alive because Jesus did not stay dead. Because God raised Jesus from the grave and gave Jesus glory, we have a hope. If you believe in the God because of the gospel, your faith and your hope are in God. Faith is only as good as its object. Hope is only as good as its object. I hope that Dairy Queen will bring back the mini Rolo Blizzard, but my hope is empty because Dairy Queen repeatedly makes terrible decisions. I have hope that one day one of my favorite sports teams will put it together and at least bring a competitive team to a field, maybe win a championship. My faith is empty. (laughs) Inept leadership, failure of talent, injuries, a general pessimism that runs over my sports life. And even if they do win a championship, immediately what we want them to do is win the championship next year too. Faith is only as good as its object. Hope is only as good as its object. My hope that Jesus Christ is alive and coming back is not empty. The tomb was, not our hope. My faith that Jesus' blood is enough to redeem me is not empty. God is the ultimate one to have faith and have hope in. And he takes empty lives and he fills them. See, the gospel is the primary motivation for our holiness. As you and I sojourn in a hostile world, during this time of exile, right? This is not our home. We have a home and this isn't it. But because God is holy, he will judge sin and we deserve this judgment. But instead of judgment, we receive mercy because God purchased us. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus. And because we've been delivered from our bondage of our former ways, we're able to display our Father's holiness during this time on earth that God has given us. Our job is not to look like the world. Our job is to show the world there's something of value to live for with our deeds and with our words. So we meditate on this gospel. We continue to believe this gospel. And as we walk through life, we trust in God's grace to help us walk in holiness. And when we fail, we don't run from God. We run to God, repenting and turning back to him because he's not only our king, he's also our father. 
You see what Peter does? He ends here by reminding these people, by reminding us that the God whom we fear as judge is also the God whom we trust as Savior completely. That he planned our redemption, verse 20a. He set forth his son Jesus for our sake. It's in verse 20. He is the one whom we depend on wholly, verse 21. He raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him, verse 21. And thus, he is the one whom we place all of our trust and all of our hope, verse 21. The God whom Christians fear is also the God whom Christians trust with absolutely everything. So where are you this morning with this? We look at this passage of Scripture and we see these things, and Peter's showing us through the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there is a God to fear. And we should fear God. But this God is also Father, and he lavishes grace on those who believe in him. And so if you're an unbeliever who's here this morning, hear me. There is hope for your empty life. There is meaning and there is purpose, and it's the blood of Jesus. For believers who are here this morning, we look at this passage and we need to ask ourselves, what do we look like? Do we look like our life is lived without Christ? Or do we look like we trust in Christ completely and fully? Is our hope fully and completely in God? Is our faith fully and completely in God? Or is it on something else? Repent where we need to repent. Be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. No matter what the world throws at us, God knows. And the blood of Jesus is more powerful. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we do get to gather together. God, I thank you that your blood is more than enough for us. That what the world offers, that what this uh, uh, flesh offers, God, all of those things are empty and they pale in comparison to you. God, I believe what you're doing right now in our world and in our part of the world particularly is you're exposing many of the idols and many of the things that we trust in for hope and for peace and for comfort. A recession is not always the worst thing that happens, God. It can drive us back to you. A government that's corrupt and leading us in ways is not always the worst thing that can happen, God. It can drive us back to you. God, I pray as we enter into this season of Advent where we remember the coming of Jesus that you would help our hearts to grow in you, God. For any unbelievers here, I pray that you would help them to repent and to believe in you. That you would save them by the blood of Jesus. Not by their works, not by their actions, but by your work and your action. God, for believers who are here, I pray that you would strengthen us that we would see the reality of what life is and we wouldn't fear it because we fear you. Thank you for Jesus, for the finished work of the cross, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Vince is going to lead us in a song.